out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Thank you, Jim. That was very useful. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show, always bringing you the finest in indie pop and beyond. As you know, we'd love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of... Wait for it. Yes, from the Black Sorrows. It is Joe Camilleri, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, all the other kind of groovy stuff, and a career in music dating back decades. Anyway, after several minutes of chat and quality rap, we got down to that exciting business of the interview. And as always, I like to bring my favourite artist into each every conversation. It is, of course, David Bowie and Lemmy. And um, I'd been mentioning that Joe was a very similar age to them. And uh, they always said their favourite or the most influential artist was Little Richard. And this was Joe's response. Joe, it's over to you. Well, it was funny. It's funny, you know, being Maltese going to Australia um, at that time. Uh, if you're, if as it turns out, became a real big music fan, but my, my influences were pretty much the same. I kind of liked rock and roll. I didn't really, I didn't put a name to it, even though I, thought, I just loved the records that were coming out at the time. So um, uh, there was doo-wop music, and there was rock and roll, um, and uh, I just loved all of that. And I got my, I got, I sort of got my schooling from. Um, those movies, you know, whether it's Rock Around the Clock or whatever the movie was called. I think it was called Black Boy Jungle or something like yes, that in Australia. It might have been it. called something else. But, but um, um, you know, there was always someone on the radio, like, um, that was fascinating and exciting and exotic, you know, and loved Conway Twitty. I just loved his name. Yes. And... Um, I don't know what what it was like in an, uh, in England or, but I would wait. <clears throat> you would they would sort of tell you when the record was going to come on. Let's say you know uh, my one and only love or whatever it was called is going to come on between eight and nine. You know, so you'd be just glued to the radio to hear that song, and. Um, Kind of just one thing led to another. The, the, as I became a slightly older uh, chap, you you started you were able to sort of find things. You know, we didn't have we didn't really have record bars. We you know we had you could buy forty fives or you had certain shops. You know, highbrow shops that sold seventy um, eights and things like that. But it wasn't until sort of early 60s that people were importing records. They probably were, but I didn't know about it. Yes, because obviously the, um, because the Beatles had that kind of whole thing with Liverpool and, you know, the, the yeah. kind of the import of ships, you know, bringing in sort of all these kind of rare sort yeah. of American records. But being in Australia, did you, were they, was there something that was equivalent? Because most cities... No, they're, they're, well, not to my knowledge, you know. It was just the music of the time, really. And and it was the radio. Radio was king. Yes, it was king all over, you know world worldwide, and and that was kind of, um, uh, so you relied on what 
what people played, you know. And my mum, my mother was a big Frank Sinatra fan, just like a lot of people were, you know, and 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 Frankie Lane and those. So those that, that kind of music I was exposed to, but just as a just as a boy growing up, uh, it, it, all of a sudden people were playing music that sort of had some value to you, you know, it wasn't your parents' music. So, so it was, it was, it was Little Richard and, and it was, um, um, uh, the blues guys, anyone that was in, you know, um, uh, anyone that was in those movies, you know, it's like, wow. The first time you saw Little Richard in, in one of those movies at the hop or whatever it was yeah. called, you know, and it was just kind of, mesmerizing because it was nothing like anything else you know it was kind of it, it was dark it, it it was mysterious it had all these it had all these different things that were that, that were incredibly attractive um so was it, it because was many many decades later i remember i suppose because because i was born in the mid 60s but i had that kind of david bowie moment of seeing him on top of the pops and sort of immediately yeah. thought oh my god that was it so i went you know my first single was you know space oddity and first album was changes one was little richard yeah. a little bit the same with you you know were you at that age where you just saw something or somebody who was kind of like god that's quite mesmerizing and otherworldly well you, you know i didn't go out and buy his records I didn't. I didn't. I didn't buy any records. But, um, but uh, I, I was. Um, I think. I, I, for me, I think it was the British invasion that sort of that sort of pulled all my my musicality together. All of a sudden, there was there was. It, I was. I was of the age yes. that I could sort of enjoy that. Up to that point, the records that I was buying really were the Shadows, or, or you know, or, which I also thought were incredible. You know, that was an the Shadows and Cliff Richard were, you know, people put Cliff Richard down a little bit, but you know, he was, you know, they and the Shadows, they they really had something. Yeah, they absolutely. were, you know, they had to pass the baton on. I know, you know, but it was hard. Imagine. It was hard being a British band trying to crack America. You know, it was very localised, I think. I, I, I don't know, you know, I don't really know the scene, but I, you know, there were, but I, I always felt that, you know, yeah, he was, he was kind of a clean cut, you know, version of Elvis or something like that, you know. Well, it's interesting because Hank sorry. Marvin was a huge influence on a lot of the punk guitarist who came along in Incredible. the mid, yeah, in the yeah. mid 70s because i think his guitar yeah. playing sort of suited also the style they wanted to recreate yeah. but a bit louder yeah and, and incredible and you know he lives in australia now lives in perth i had the pleasure he came and saw me play once i thought it was i was just you know when you you get knocked out you know you don't know you don't know what the hell's going on you know sort of you know saying so you know uh, sort of enjoying my silly performance, but uh, um, no, I, I kind of loved that. You know, as I said, sort of it was all about being driven by radio and television. But but when the British, I don't know, they called it, I don't know what they called it in in England, but here it was kind of like you know the 
they just put everything to it. You know, the British beat, you know, Dave Clark five, the kinks, you know, the beat, all these Beatles, all, all these bands to me sounded really attractive, really interesting. And it suited who I was as a, as a young man trying to, you know, find his way in the world. Uh, and it became a big part of my life. So, and then I didn't look at the Beatles as being the band. I just kind of looked at, uh, whatever the song was, you know, the Kinks. Oh, well, I'd love that, love that song, you know, and they're number one, you know, or the animals. And then eventually you start working through what was going on. So my thing was when, when I got to that level and brought uh, a, a dozen berries, I think it was called by Chuck Berry, because I realised that Chuck Berry was a big influence on this music, he, he, indirectly and directly because they were doing his songs. I thought, you know, and I hated a dozen berries. I kind of couldn't, it was, you know, it was too wild for me, you know, because I, I got a watered down version of, of whatever, you know, roll over Beethoven or, yes. or, or the Stones, you know, doing Chuck Berry and, and, and both the Beatles and the Stones did great versions of these uh, American classics that America have forgotten about, you know, so it was kind of a it was it was a very interesting time, uh, the the invasion of the British beat. So when did you f start to find your own sort of kind of musical path, as in sort of your uh, your voice and thinking actually I could or should be getting up and doing that because it's quite a jump, isn't it, to be in, just listening to the radio yeah. to to them wanting to be on that stage. Not many people make that transition. Uh, look, you know, I, I, I was on a road to nowhere, really. I was good. Uh, I was hanging out with that kind of, you know, um, those uh, that kind of scene, and um, uh, it was either get off the road uh, and find new people, and I could sing a bit, but I didn't know anything about that. I just sing with the record, with the radio in the car. And, and it was just, I didn't have any, I didn't have this kind of, you know, uh, feeling that and desire to be like any of these people. I just could sing the songs and used to have fun singing it. And my friends would like it, you know, and I, you know, it was a kind of a little party trick, you know, you could do, you really got me really well. Yeah, and it wasn't a big stretch, mind you, you know, though I do, you know, but as years go by, you sort of realise how how wonderful Ray Davies was as a singer, you know, it didn't even, what he had, he used his voice in an incredible way that made it unique, and, and um, but in those days, you just kind of sang the song, and, and, um, uh, the House of the Rising Sun, you know, that was a massive record in yes. Australia, and, um, and and songs like that, you know, and, and and so not knowing what was going on with the Australian fraternity of, of music, you would hear those songs and you would you would be in sort of intoxicated by the musicality, you know, and you didn't realise that the the they're just learning on the job, so to speak. You know, they're just kind of doing the best they can. They might have played the House of the Rising Sun 500 times 
and then went and recorded it because they knew the song, you know, like um, uh, it was just kind of enchanting and sort of mysterious and, and wonderful. And, um, and, and, and so to answer your question, finally, you know, you, you may say, why don't we, why don't we start a band, you know, and we buy instruments. And of course you don't realize that you need, you, you've got to go through that horrible pain of learning to play something, you know. I think we've learned Lucille, talking about Little Richard. I think it took us, I don't know, four months to learn it. Excellent. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> yes. you know like to actually play it in, you know, like to play it. The, because, and it's got a, it's got a really, you know, it's not that difficult, but it's really difficult for all of us to play it together or something like that, you know. And, um, would fall would fall apart like a cheap Hong Kong suit or something, and <laughs> and, and and it'd be but it'd be marvelous because we'd be sitting there. It'd be a Saturday afternoon, and the parents have you know given you the house for three hours, right? Yes. And can you uh, now, as a professional musician, you know, if you hear drums that are you know aren't they're not tuned, and you're trying to play something, you don't even realize, you know. You, we didn't have tuners in those days, so it was all by ear, and it was all by. There's always one geezer that can do something that no one else can do. You know, the guitar player could tune up, tune the guitars. Uh, uh, but it was a, just a load of fun, and and then getting your first gig, and being terrible, but being so excited <laughs> about being terrible, you know, and uh, and and your friends kind of just egging you on to be that and yes. I, I think that there that's there lied the um um the day that i got sucked into this whole idea of saying you know what the the i the, this could be something that i could do mm. and because I, I, there's nothing in my life that i want to do yes because you'd obviously i mean you were sort of in your mid-20s when you got your the first band jojo day but you'd been in a few other bands. Oh, I, I had a lot of bands before that, but that yeah. was my first kind of, uh, that was my first big band. And I, I, I fell into that, but uh, sorry, I didn't get you, you didn't, I, I jumped in. No, I was going to say, because you'd sort of before, I was going to say you were in your sort of mid-20s when that, that yeah. sort of, I suppose your yeah. your first big band, but before then. But but so what had you been, had you just been, to, to, to sort of use a technical term, a slightly bumming around? I don't know what they call it. Yeah, no, time. that's great. <laughs> well, I was just kind of, I, I, I finally hooked up with people that were, you know, um, I didn't have any schooling, right? So, um, you know, there weren't many opportunities for me or I couldn't see any. Um, and so when I, when I started, playing around 1965 most of the kids were still at school and uh, or most of the kids were doing different things and I, I uh, and it was a part-time um, consideration so I, I was playing with a band called the King Bees and I really I, I, I really loved them not only as as people you know they were like-minded and they, they had other interests and and they showed me things and they and we started looking at different things collectively, you know, um, around that time. You know, the, the bass player, David, had uh, – he came from a family that 
had lots of um, blues records, you know, that I never heard of, you know, uh, and and we would start playing those kind of that kind of music as well because he was in he was into that, you know. So he had Big Bill Brunsey songs or Snooks Eagland songs or uh, you know. Um, um, or Lead Belly songs. They were big fans of Lead Belly, you know. And this came from the folk world, so it did exist. But they were seventy-eight, so they weren't on. Wasn't they weren't on vinyl? But but um, so he would encourage us to to do that. And and Peter was a was interested in Lou Rolls, you know. So oh, yes. they come. Kind of, it was just kind of a, like a wacky kind of thing. I was into the Stones and and all things, you know, Paul Butterfield blues band by then, and and had moved away from the British invasion and and got into this, um, you know, through them got into other things, and you know, because the Paul Butterfield blues band that first record just blew my mind. Um, um, and, you know, had Mike Bloomfield on it, of course, Paul Butterfield, all great players and great record. And, and um, yes, because at that time in the late 60s, obviously, it's well documented that in the UK and USA and also in Europe, especially France and Germany, there was a lot, you know, it was yeah. a huge kind of the counterculture and the sort of the hippie movement. And then you had the kind of whole yeah. revolution sort of period. So what was it like in Australia? What was the kind of the general youth movement there? Because because obviously there was there was a protest and you had people like the Doors yeah. writing some quite dark yeah. stuff. You had Charles Manson and, you know, and a lot yeah. of the, you know, the Summer of Love was 67 where you had that kind of mm. big event that took place in San Francisco, you know, in yeah. January. And then you had the 14-hour Technicolor Dream in Ali Pali in London. And that was like 67 was like a really beautiful it sounded anyway from beautiful yeah. period but then it sort of gets dark and unpleasant and it ends on a bad note with Altamont and Woodstock was yeah, kind of right. hit and miss and then you had you know the death of you know Jimi Hendrix Janis Joplin Jim Joplin. Morrison really quickly so the 60s kind of were like oh that's that that party kind of ended rather on a down I just wondered what <laughs> <Abruptly>. the <laughs> yes it's like should we all just kind of go home now you know it was not great was it in the end though it looked no. fantastic well but here's the thing I reckon for me, you know, because I, uh, we were ten thousand miles away, it was really hard to get that uh, that kind of communication, you know. Or you know, got the news and things like that. But so things move slowly in Australia in, in, from that perspective, you know. So the flower movement was a bit longer, um, but we had our own protests. We 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 had um, you know we had the Vietnam. War that we were sort of pushed into, you know, and we we so we were every all the youth were rebelling against all those things. We didn't want to fight, you know. It it was a wonderful time for the idea. Idealistically, it was just incredible, you know, freedom, and 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 to be whatever it is that you want to be. No color, no nothing, you know. Australia is quite a racist country, you know. Uh, you wouldn't think so in the 60s, but um, f from my perspective, but, you know, I didn't even know what racism was, you know, because, but um, never saw an Aboriginal in the street. Yeah. And never, never, never saw, hardly ever saw one. And, and even to this day, you know, um, though, you know, they're getting their just rewards now. Uh, and, um, you know, and it's still a struggle, but, but so it was a slower movement, and it, it seemed seemed to be, you know, people would um, 
I think the closest thing that I got to it was uh, I might have put on you know, my sister's beads around my neck. <laughs> but uh, I had missed it. So, you know, I'm probably the wrong person to talk about, but talk to about it. But there was a movement and, uh, you know, and what was really great is that uh, it made a difference. The protesting made a big difference. It, it brought the wall down, you know, on many different things. And, then, and that was great. But from my musical thing, I went from, I kind of missed that whole thing. You know, I missed... Um, I'm just trying to think of the Rolling Stones record that was kind of all mystical and that was kind of that had Ruby, not didn't have oh, Ruby Tuesday. Yes, on it. Uh, the Majest uh, Oh, yes. Yeah, that kind of thing that, you know, uh, they, they were chasing the Beatles for, you know. Sergeant Pepper uh, one, wasn't it? Which was the yeah, kind that of. Was Sergeant, yeah, yes. incredible records. But, you know, so that. I remember that record sort of leaving me a bit cold. I like it more now than I did when it came out. Uh, but but you know I went straight to uh, I went straight to Chicago basically you know uh, so I went into that sort of um, heavy blues and 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 discovered well I, I had sort of done my kind of funny research you know and from Chuck Berry you got Muddy Waters from Muddy Waters you know you got Blind Willie McTell and, and so on and so on and, and and I started taking on a slightly different musical course. I mean, it was a wonderful, it was an incredible time, the 60s, because the jazz scene was just as big, really, in some ways, in, from, in Amer from an American point of view, I imagine, as the rock scene, you know. People were buying Love Supreme. You talk, you know, a lot of rock artists were talking about Coltrane, you know, and, and that free movement, the free jazz movement, you know, the avant-garde. Yes. Uh, I, was, I was quite attracted to that. Uh, so pop music to me was kind of, I still I still enjoyed it. I loved the Four Tops and Bob Dylan. I loved everything that was coming out. You know, I was just I was just a musical sponge, yeah, and, and really enjoyed. It. But 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 <clears throat> as soon as I I found the saxophone, it, it kind of it took me on a different kind of journey. And that's why I think the '60s were great. You know, because once again, you talked about. Um, uh, Hendrix and Joplin, you know, Coltrane died in the '60s. You know, a lot of a lot of people, a lot of famous people died in the '60s. So we're in in a different movement, but just as important and just as valid and just as, you know, there'll never be another Coltrane. No. You know? but, well, but, um, but interesting. So, but interesting. So, a lot of the '60s artists had sort of grown yeah. up with that beat beat generation and the Jack Kerouac yeah. and and yeah. Ginsberg. So and within those kind of books and poetry and prose, there was a lot of jazz, wasn't there, that they referenced. Yeah. So there was to be cool hip and, and happening, you did have to love the people like, you know, the Bebop stuff, the Miles Davis, yeah. the, the Cab Calloways. And and so yeah. you know, and that and and many decades later, when I found you know the this on the road for myself, you know, I, I sort of mm. wanted to then listen to all that music. So I could imagine in the sixties, because it represented such a like this isn't what your parents 
want you to yeah. have and this isn't what mainstream society wants you to have. So it kind of must have felt like a very rebellious thing to read the world of Dean Moriarty or the world of, you know, Ginsburg yeah. and people like that. So that that beat stuff was was quite a huge influence. And I could see if you were talking about jazz, that would have been part of it, because I know David Bowie always mentioned you know, those kind of people, particular people. And he lo he loved his jazz saxophone, yeah. didn't he? Yeah, well, he's, I've got a few of those. Um, he's got a Bakelite, um, he had a Bakelite saxophone. There's a photo of him with a Bakelite saxophone. I think that's what he played. Um, you know, he, you know, he was a rare and special bird bowie. Yes. And, um, and, and I think that, um, you know, I wish I could have understood him more. You know, I mean, you can only take in so much stuff. You know, I kind of missed a lot of stuff. I, you know, I was, it was in my, it was, you know, in my surroundings. But you know, I was kind of moving away from a lot of different things, and and you you tend to put your energy sometimes just in certain little corners, you know, and there's a a, a lot of things as. You know, you go back to and say, "Wow, I can't believe I missed that." Or I, uh, you know, that what a great song that is. How did I, how did I sort of avoid that? You know, how could, how could that happen? You know. Yes. And uh, and uh, so when you and, and, and what's really interesting is that all these people are moving forward. You know, and sometimes you can't, you 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 can't take it all in. You can't, you know, you you just can't handle it. Well, I know. And, and I mean, it was kind of interesting because when you, you know, when you got Jojo Zepp together, mm. that was the mid-70s. And in the UK, we'd had the glam period and the prog yeah. world was happening and heavy metal. So there was, and, and the very early pub rock, which became yeah. sort of punk rock, really, had started to sort yeah. of flourish as well. So where, where, was, where were you sort of taking your influences when, that, when you started to sort of bring that band together? Well, you know, look, I, I was still in the – look, I fell into that band. You know, uh, it was um, it was just a, a bunch of guys that, that were uh, disenchanted with what they were doing and they wanted to start something new. I was playing in a band called the Palaco Brothers and and um, me and, and Steve Cummings went through this audition and I was playing the saxophone and Steve was singing. Steve decided not to um, – didn't he decided that it wasn't for him? It was a bit too um, too rock and roll for him, and he was kind of more into the new wave thing. And he started a band called the Sports, and I thought it was just perfect for me because because I I, um, uh, I I just really enjoyed some of the songs that they were playing, and 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 we had this guy called Wayne Bird who was a writer who was just a really really good, strong, solid. Um, um, writer and singer and I thought I could fit into that and, and so I fell into that really and the, the band was already tailor-made for someone to just fall into and I had the bravado and the the nonsense that they required <laughs> and um and, and and they had the songs Wayne had Wayne had already you know gathered had written you know maybe a hundred songs or something and um, so, you, you know, it just came out of three or four different bands. Um, and that's how, that's how the band started. Though we, we had no direction forward. We just had, uh, you know, 
a love for playing. You were just talking about um, Cab Calloway. Those sort of songs I, I, I was quite interested in. So it had nothing to do with what was going on in the scene. And the scene was kind of pretty strange. And the pub scene was very big here because of the 10 o'clock closing. All of a sudden they changed from 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock closing and therefore they needed certain kind of entertainment to keep the people there drinking had nothing to do with pretty much anything else, you know, and you, you got your reputation by how good you were or how good you could play someone else's songs, whatever that kind of, whatever that was, you know, there was not, the record industry was pretty, was pretty small. And, um, but because of that, because of the fan base that you, you can gather, um, you, you could make a record, you know, and, and maybe that's how, um, um, that's how that the industry sort of kicked in in the 70s but um so playing with them and, and we had we already had a whole bunch of original songs and and um i kind of slotted in very well because it wasn't i didn't want to be a singer i just wanted to play the saxophone and we had john power who was a great blues singer and taught me a lot about what was going on in a certain part of his world and uh, and Wayne Burt, who was also a great singer. So between and Gary Young was a great singer as well. So we had we could do something, you know. We could harmonise. We could we could make something simple sound really quite a professional, um, for a better word. And and, um, and and so we got to cut our teeth in these bars and and, and hotels, you know. So we do 250 shows a year. So you are kind of ready to make a record, you know, it turned, didn't turn out to be a great record, but, but a record nevertheless. But, uh, and then we got our popularity just from our live performances, I'd say, you know, and one thing led to another. Yes. Well, I suppose it was like when, I suppose with the Beatles, I mean, obviously their yeah. managers sort of saw potential, but also realised they were, they still needed work. So when they went to Hamburg, they sort of played yeah. two, three times a day for months on end yeah. and, and sort of cut their teeth. So the live, Playing live and in front of an audience is kind of critical. And I know I've, I love the story of the you know Black, Black Sabbath and their first album where mm. they just they'd been playing for years and went to record it and did the first album I think in one one day because yeah. it's like well we've been playing it for years we don't really need to yeah. go you know we don't even need to play it twice in the studio and it was like blimey you just recorded a classic in an afternoon so it is yeah. it is interesting but it takes a lot of work though doesn't it it takes years yes I mean it was a bit like that, that Malcolm Gladwell you know the hundred thousand hours you sometimes yeah. you know when well, you, right. he calculated the sergeant pepper album the beatles would have been playing for a long time and it might have been in that you know a lot of hours had gone into making yeah. that one record which you know i mean it's not my favorite album of theirs but it certainly has mm. kind of moments of genius and and sort of creative kind of excitement so um that was kind of interesting that's what well, I what, what, what what's great about that record for me is that that that, that everything was available you, you had the opportunity in those days to have anything is available to you. You know, once we got, once they got to that level, so if they wanted a French horn, they, you know, it, 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 it just turned pop music on its head. And I think there, there lies that that's what was really exciting. Um, you were able to mix all these different things, you know, it wasn't a lab coat component where you're just in the studio and they'll just say, well, 
one more time, Bobby, you know, <laughs> and you don't even, <laughs> don't even hear it, you know, you just kind of go again. I, I did, you know, I'm just going to jump forward. I did my first Black Sorrows record like that. You know, we had, we had 12 songs and none of them were original. I think I had one original song, 10 made the record, you know, and, and we, we made the album and then we finished the album in an afternoon because the same concept. We played the songs. They're the only songs we knew. We had one gig in a cafe, and uh, and we could jam, you know. So you could jam on it. You could do it, you know. But it was it was just a, it was it wasn't even a part time gig. That's how that, that's that's how that band started. It was just kind of you know like a, you just get, get, gather gather up a few hoodlums and you you um you, you do the songs, you know, and and uh, and it's. It's a lovely little record, you know. It's out of tune. It's out of. It's just got. No, there's a, just a nice thing about the fact that you could tell that you didn't go for seconds, you know. <laughs> Excellent. Did you feel, you know, when you got your first, the first single, "Beaten Around the Bush," was that yeah. kind of a, a moment that you felt that the band had really started to progress? I, I just thought that it was a really good band, anyway. You know. Uh, um, I thought that was a really good song, and it really um, it, it was a slice of Australia, you know, as, uh, as small as it was, you know. Um, and I just thought that it was uh, it was a clever piece of writing at the time. You know, I, I had no idea about songwriting. Uh, it was one of Wayne's songs, and uh, and he sings it. I'm just playing the saxophone in it, and I get a chance to you know, try to be like Junior Walker, you know, with a very big porn moustache. But uh, um, the, that to me was, um, and being on TV, you know, it's, uh, the, you know, they're, they're just wonders. And, and uh, things that that some people would, you know, after you do it for a while, you take for granted, you know, you kind of, you know, the smoke and mirrors, you know. But when you're there and you're doing it and you're, you're so excited about everything around you and you're sort of you're taking it all in you know all the sparkles all the diamonds you you don't see the you 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 don't see the hard work yes because it's quite interesting because one of my favorite reggae songs of all time is the del delroy wilson i mean is it? Dance of, yes it, it oh, really lovely. is because there was a dj in this country called john peel who was kind yeah, of yeah, quite john one peel. of those kind of people who would be able to yeah. discover well you know find these kind of uh, obscure albums from all over the world and he always used to love you know playing reggae and delroy yeah. wilson's in a dancing mood is one of those ones yeah. that i remember isn't it great isn't a great song it is an amazing yeah. song because he loved people it's... like gregory isaacs and dennis brown yeah, and Sly and robbie too. but it was you know and and you sort of cover it which again did that take yeah. a bit of persuading for the band? Well, no. I and I used to play it like that, you know. And then uh, uh, we got a producer, and he changed it, and he funked it up. He ruined it. Uh, I always thought he ruined that song, and because uh, we used to play it ex almost exactly like, you know, without the piano, we didn't have the piano play, but it was just so sexy. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, and the. Everything about that song, we I I still play it sometimes. I'll just start playing it, sound checks, you know. Everyone just kind of falls into line, and and we play it just similar to uh, that wonderful version, you know. I know. Well, but I I, I, love, I, I I was 
Sorry, I was. Just I know. I was going to say I love that kind of roots reggae sound of the seventies and yeah. early eighties with people. Yeah. So and it does. It does have a, an amazing little kind of. It gets the crowd just moving, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just beautiful. You know, reggae wasn't popular in in Australia as much as as it was in England. You know, it didn't have. It just we you know, for some unknown reason just we couldn't just pick it up. Not 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 new. It was a big musical. Musicians loved it. Audiences didn't sort of fall for it enough, you know. There was, you know, there was the big hits, you know. But, but, um, but um, all in all, people in Australia love rock music, you know. So that's kind of like the staple diet, you know. Yes. And, and you were talking about, you know, like oh, we were talking about the the hours and the gigs that you would play. You kind of learn very early how to sort of try to corral an audience, you know, and you have to deal with what people wanted, you know, uh, as uh, as well as what you wanted to do, you know. There was always this kind of conflict between, it was kind of sometimes you, you're a lightweight contender in a heavyweight bout, you know, you're getting kicked around, you get punched up and you got to get up and you got to, you know, you got to do this stuff. And I love this music, you know, um, and in the Falcons, I introduced all these things, these kind of rhythms that I thought would be handy, you know, uh, and um, and that was one of the songs that we would play that I introduced, and I got uh, and then I started writing and I wrote something similar, not similar, but in a in a style which was a, a song called "So Young," and um, you know it, it was it was it was weird, but it wasn't it wasn't meant to be weird. It just turned out to be a bit weird, but it was a, a sort of minor hit and. And you know, and and um, you know, I've had a few uh, covers on that record, but um, it wasn't uh, it wasn't till uh, I wrote "Hit and Run" in the shape I'm in, and a few other songs that that that, uh, that I was able to introduce sort of a a reggae beat, but it wasn't sort of reggae, you know, it was a rock reggae kind of feeling, uh, but it all came so you know from those kind of records from the Trojan records that you you know you we i would find of all places i live in victoria melbourne melbourne victoria uh, in adelaide adelaide had a big english uh, um, migration they moved there was germans and 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 um and english moved to adelaide a lot more of them so a lot of these people brought some of these records with them you know and you'd find them in the bins and you'd find you know the Trojan, I've, I've still got it, you know, it's, I think five records set or three, five records set of the Trojan records, you know, uh, and uh, you, you would just, I just fell in love with all that kind of stuff. And when I, when I finally got to England, the first thing I went was looking for, you know, the big 12, 12 inch remixes because there, there must have been thousands of those kind of things and it must have been a wonderful time yes. uh, to be in England at the time because there was that and the, they're both anti-establishments you know and, and punk rock you know it's kind of like this wonderful movement that these two cultures were able to under have this understanding you know and I guess the clash comes into play here you know Absolutely, but in in but you you know sort of well the one the one band that sort of does kind of get exported from Australia, which who who are huge, is is kind of obviously yeah. ACDC who started around yeah. the sort of the, the mid seventies. So were you quite aware of 
their their presence because they did an album called High Voltage around yeah, seventy five, yeah. <clears throat> and obviously they they go straight for heavy blues rock, don't they? Yeah. And and there's no messing. There's they, they are the status. There's no mucking around. It's there's, just kind of there's a status quo. Potatoes, really, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, but, but obviously um, it does go down well, doesn't it? And I know status quo in yeah. the UK are really like you. This is what you're going to get. There's no. There's nothing prog. There's nothing. There's no fiddly no. bits. It's going to be solid. No, rock. I don't think they know the fourth chord. But, <laughs> you know, and God bless them for it. You know, uh, yeah. Look, you know, that was just another band doing the hard slog. I saw them play with Chuck Berry. <laughs> you know, it's a kind of an unusual concept. Um, but yeah, you know, he's cheeky. You know, they had songs. They had they had a style and and. Um, uh, and they were good songs too, you know, and 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 they came out of, you know, other bands like Fraternity and all those kind of things, you know. You're just making your way. Sometimes you fall into something that's, that, you know, there's no rhyme or reason. It just happens to be the right thing at the right time and you're saying the right things, you know. Yes, well, absolutely. Because um, I did an interview with Daryl Dennis from Radio Birdman yeah. and, and, again, you know, it was another one of those bands who... They didn't sort of um, export quite the same way as ACDC, but they're hugely influential. So again, there was there was obviously a, a happening music scene. Now in this country, and the one thing I sort of have sort of grown to sort of realise more and more doing these interviews is that you had these gatekeepers, like in in the UK, you did have people like John Peel, and there was a few other DJs yeah. as well on radio on BBC Radio One. Then you had the music press, like the NME and the Melody Maker and Sounds and Record Mirror. Yeah. I mean, and and sort of either a play on John Peel or a feature in one of those publications, kind of gave you huge exposure. Did you have a similar kind of, I don't know, gatekeeper? I suppose. Yeah. Well, not necessarily. Well, we had. To some degree, you know, we still have them. You know, they're on alternative radio. Um, but we had uh, shows like Night Moves. I think Night Moves was kind of a, a good show because you played live on TV. You, um, you were able to be whatever it is that you thought you could be. And, um, and, and then there was a judge and jury, you know, which was the audience. Oh, is that you? There's an alarm. Sorry, there's an alarm going. One, one minute, David. <laughs> that's all right. Oh, that's okay. You there? <laughs> yeah, I'm still here. I'm sorry. I don't know what that was. No, uh, I'm using Michelle's phone. Okay. Um, um, and, and I think shows like that, and of course we had, we had pop shows, but uh, as far as people like John Peel, there were there were people like that. We've got a guy called Brian Wise now, who. You know, the, the, they do this tireless work, you know, and they document music in a certain kind of way. There's all kinds of different things. Um, you, 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 compared to, we're, 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 you know, we're a small beer on, on so many different levels, you know, but all those things exist on some levels. But I always found that that show experience was um, and shows like that. There was a few shows because uh, got to admit the arts were, you know, uh, in in, the, in those at that time, they were being funded pretty well by the government, 
all those things have changed now you know there's no tv shows for people to sort of show their art there's all you got to get on the morning show you know and play your song from 1976 or something you know because uh, they're not interested in the new as much as you know they're more interested in the fact that you might have some history but um what i liked about that it, it exposed the band for what it was you know there was no smoke and mirrors it was kind of what it is and you had you had a half an hour to sort of prove your worth um and, and i found that was i found that to be attractive and i thought they 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 lied a whole bunch of different things we had of course our version of top of the pops and and all all that kind of thing gatekeepers you know uh I, to be honest with you, I can't really think of one offhand from that period of time. Yes, because a lot of the bands that are sort of done, especially the 80s, I mean, they have normally a five-year narrative of they get together, mm. you know, they're, they're sort of probably unemployed, so they're claiming some sort of job seekers allowance or benefit. And then they do, you know, they, they make a record that John Peel would play and then, you know, mm. they, that would get them a John Peel session and an album. Things would go well. Yeah. Often, you know, it was the classic, the second album often slightly finished them off. And if, in, if anybody in the UK toured America... That definitely seemed mm. to be the sort of the nail in the coffin of the band because mostly people said, and then we toured yeah. America, came home yeah. and, and we split up because <laughs> we just yeah, couldn't cope with it. Got the photos, took the, got the got the clothes. Yeah, look, there there was a, you know we've had of course there there are people that kind of people deal with you know if you got on uh, we have a paper called the age if you if someone was raving about you in in that paper you know people and when we've got our kind of versions of melody maker and and stuff like that but most of the time you know people were kind of just um dealing with things that were just happening at the time not necessarily what was good um you know, so you'd have to sort of say, well, it's just one person's opinion, you know. Um, and the same with John Peel, you know, um, too. You know, some people probably disagreed with that. But you had, there was such, you, you, the really great thing of living in that neighborhood is that you had Europe. You had, you had so much, you know, um, um, there was so much more currency. There was so much more. Uh, richness. There was so much more history. There was so much of everything, and a lot more things were available to you. You know, we were just kind of colonial, and we had a couple of things that we could do. One thing that we could do by the time we got to play America is that we could play together. You know, and by that time, the scene had been. What I noticed when I got to England was. Yeah, the, the the pub scene was dead, you know. It was all about showcase, you know. You'd have to showcase stuff, you know, um, a, a little more, and more more so in America than 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 Europe. We didn't we didn't get a, a chance to play too many places in Europe. We just went from pretty much from London, uh, did a couple of shows, you know, and, and then. And then went straight to Boston and then did a whole tour, you know, and came back and just about broke up, you know, <laughs> you know got the photo yeah. uh, to prove it. But, um, um, you, you know, so it was kind of always a little bit, it, it was tough being the darlings, you know, you didn't want to, you kind of really wanted to be an outsider all the time, you know, and, and let people discover the things that you have. We weren't playing the, um, 
we 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 were kind of an oddball band, Jojo Zip and the Falcons. You know, we we playing rhythm and blues. You know, the, what old-fashioned rhythm and blues. You know, we, that that's kind of where we that's where we felt at home. That's where we kind of had our daily bread. That's where uh, there was a uh, the heartbeat was beating strong. You know, I made I, I recorded and wrote a few songs that became pop songs. You know, with the music that we were talking about before, the reggae music, and sort of finding a way of doing something that had a beat that, uh, and um, got a producer, you know, an English producer, Peter Solly, turned up and he was, he didn't even like us, you know, <laughs> but he obligated to produce the record, you know, and, and uh, to his credit, you know, got us, um, squared us up a little bit and, and we had a couple of a couple of beautiful years, you know. Yes. So when it came to just skipping slightly forward, coming to your the the album Char, which was your seventh yeah. one, and the one that sort yeah. of was probably you know the final one, you know from that yeah. period, that was eighty two. Did you did you feel like when you were started to record that that, that that this was going to be the end of the band? Well, it already sort of uh, you know it already the. The fragments of it had already sort of started, you know, um, to show. Um, I didn't have any songs. And when I hear that record, you know, the lyrics are terrible. Ter a couple of good ideas really played badly. Uh, a couple of things that stuck. Um, I think the best song on it is, is Taxi Mary. It's kind of so wacky and so weird. And that was a reggae song and Peter turned it into something, you know. It was cocaine-fueled record that had nothing to do with me, really. Uh, well, it had. Of course, I was I was doing it, but I can't remember anything of it. I think I can remember singing Walk On By, which I also liked. Yes. Um, well, I, I, I liked that because I, I was able to find, you know, when you do someone else's music, if you can find a way in uh, that's also attractive, um, you know, you you feel like you've you, it's worthy of a of you know it's not only a tipping of the hat, but it's worthy of its existence. And I thought that was pretty good. Uh, but those two, everything else on that record, uh, pretty much was awful. And uh, it's out there, you know. But I I just find it as a songwriter, uh, it was kind of my bleakest time. I had no. I had a desire to do it, but I was in in a, in such a state that um, I didn't even know what state I was in, really. You know, uh, and and we we were coming, we were we were falling down. You know, there was um, your audiences were getting smaller. Everything was getting. Um, I had moved on, and and you know there were fragments of things to come. You know. I was in love with Keith Creole and the Coconuts. I was kind of, I wanted to make a record. One minute I wanted to make a record like that. The next minute I wanted to make something else. You know, I think there should have been an intervention <laughs> on that record. You know, just stop. Yes. Joe, just stop. Just go back to the meat market and just go and do a couple of years there for, and come back, you know. Um, because sometimes you can, saying that, and we've all had it, you know, every everyone finds this hole you know there's peaks and valleys apparently and i was in a valley um but that but strangely enough 
that yielded those two songs in Australia. They were kind of hit records, you know. Uh, Taxi Mary was so weird that it became a top 10 single. And it gave me an opportunity to let go of of um, Jojo Zepp and, and, and wave it goodbye. And it was the beginning. So in a weird way, it was the beginning of, of, of something else, you know. Mm. And I... I I, I got a my version of Kick Creole and the Coconuts, you know, a couple of girl singers, six horn players, you know. It was big and it was brash and it was bold and it was fun. And, you know, we all wore cummerbunds and 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 um it was arty and it was all the things that I still loved about uh, doing things that, you know, w- had nothing to do with time, had nothing to do with the music of the day, had nothing to do with um, apart from having a song that's on the radio, you know, by accident. Yeah. Um, um, and so, um, and, and once again, God bless Peter, he found something in that record, in that song, that, um, or it must have been hard for him, but um, that had nothing to do with the band. Yeah. So, so because because uh, because at the end of one yeah. musical adventure, you know, and that was quite a big one for you, and also you've been yeah. doing for music for over a decade. Most people then just want to crawl off and and get their mind and and body back together, not go into another musical kind of adventure. So that that on its own is is incredibly impressive. Yeah. Well, I guess so. You know, looking you know, at uh, to me, it was always about being able to do something that was interesting you know i was working at the my job was you know i was a veggie roadie at that time you know so i i really felt from grace i was i was um i was uh, putting uh, fruit from the trucks into another truck that was my job you know just picking up fruit taking it to the other trucks and and you get five dollars an hour and you get breakfast and you do that and all the vegetables you want to take home. So, you know, it was, there were cold mornings. They were harsh mornings. They were, it was, you know, a, a real fall from grace, but I had to have a job and I found that that job had more value to me than trying to get a musical job. And, um, so, you, you know, I, I didn't mind, I didn't mind those things because from there I found, uh, an idea that gave me an opportunity to have a band for so many years, you know, um, which turned out to be uh, the Black Sorrows, you know, and uh, and gave me, um, uh, you know, some great success and an opportunity to do things all around the world, which was, you know, it's always marvellous to be able to do that, you know, to be a big fish in a small pond is annoying, but to be... Um, you know, a little fish in a very big pond is kind of there's a lot of opportunities in that. You know, and you can you can be invisible and and still be able to do all the things that you, you think that are valuable to you. Yes, absolutely. And you have worked in that, with that band with some phenomenal mm. artists and musicians yeah. and, and singers, including you know Linda Ball and um, yeah and Vicar uh, Vicar yeah. and and that must have been a really fantastic experience as well. Yeah, well, it was an experience for them too, you know. They were kind of – this is the whole thing about a musical fraternity. You, you find something in someone – you know, it was meant to be sort of a six-week tour, 
you know, I just finished the record, almost finished the record, Hold On To Me, which turned out to be really quite a big record for me and took us, you know, catapulted us into something else, you know, that we weren't ready for, you know, because all of a sudden the the, the, the eyes of Europe were upon us, you know, to some degree. Um, and, and we were just meant to do a six-week tour. They fell in love with the band. We fell in love with them, you know. We, I, I went back into the studio and put them on where I could, and 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 it felt like a band, you know. It really just did feel like a band that would, you know, would would look after each other. And if someone was sick, there was no, there was no beard, you know. If you if you can't play, we can't play, which was old fashioned but beautiful. You know, these days, you know, you don't know what you're getting, you know, even even as stable as my band is. Sometimes I lose players, you know, but in the Falcon days and early Cyrus days, it was one for all and all for one. And that's how it worked. You know, we all got the same money. There was no kind of mucking around. There was no there was no hidden agendas. It was just about the you know, playing music that we liked to play, you know, and we did it hard and we worked really hard. And that record uh, uh, became really popular because not so much, I mean, it is a really good record, but it was all about the touring. It was all about people falling in love with this band that had nothing to do with what was going on in the world at that particular point of time in this country, you know. Um, and it was having, from my perspective, respecting two really great singers and saying, you don't, you don't, you guys don't sit in the back. You come up the front with me. You're in the front with me. You're in the front. We're all in the front line. You know, there's no backing singers here. You know, and I think that uh, attitude was a was a a very good move. I didn't. It wasn't something I even thought about. It was just something that that we did, and I think that that was a great thing for that band. Yes. And 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 you know, it was our fifth record. You know, so it wasn't, it didn't come easy, you know, all that popularity happened with a whole bunch of different things, four hard years, maybe five, you know. Um, and, and I think sort of Elvis Costello, who helped that first record, Sonola, who loved that record, you know, and um, I think he loved the honesty of the record and, and he, you know, it, I even think he stole a couple of things on King of America off that record, but you know, the attitude, the piano accordion, the violin, not, you know, in 82, 83 in Australia, playing the violin and piano accordion in a rock kind of environment was how would we call it a bit daggy. Uh, you know, it was kind of a, uh, slightly unusual, you know, and to play sort of not Zydeco music, but, you know, the R&B, turning R&B into this slightly changing, this kind of feeling and... And it was it was being played because we wanted to play it. It wasn't sort of a, it wasn't a sort of a, a well thought out scenario, you know. Yes, because before, just to go back slightly, a place in the world, mm. which is the, mm. the third album, that was when you you really got your songwriting back together, wasn't it? And you were on yeah. phenomenal creative and working with Nick Smith. Yeah, yeah. Well, Did, that, that's right. You know, a really bad sounding record with some really good ideas, you know. But uh, you, you, you kind of, this is the thing, isn't it? You know, you kind of just do, you do it where you can. Uh, we had an opportunity to record in a kitchen uh, with with some modern technology, you know. The, the, uh, there was a thing, ADATs became 
the thing, you know. All of a sudden, you can record on this digital tape. And um, this guy had an ADAP machine that we kind of recorded. We, 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 we recorded a whole bunch of songs, uh, which felt like it took forever because you know, I'm, I'm sort of, for me, normally it's an all-in brawl. You know, we're all in. You know, that's how you record. And that's how the old-fashioned people recorded it. You know, you, Little Richard, you know, talking about all those sort of records. You know, now you're just putting the drums down and you're waiting, you know. And then you're waiting for, or you're putting the bass, you know, and then you put the, it's kind of annoying. And, 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 for, and you couldn't, I, I couldn't piece it in my brain together, you know. You say, I think, you know, I've got this song, Country Girls, it's really good, you know. Uh, but we kind of learned it in, you know, like a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, and that was the sign of the times too, you know, all of a sudden the, the digital world came into play and people thought they can get rid of drums, have a drum machine and then put cymbals on top of a drum machine. You know, it was kind of a very frustrating. Um, yes. But uh, I love that song, A Place in the World. I, I still think that's a really lovely song and have it your own sweet way. They're, and that was that sort of Tex-Mex kind of concept, you know, and walking through that and sort of, and having someone that I can bounce off, you know. I mean, me and Nick in those days would just kind of sit in the backyard and and just kind of write write some songs. Most of the time we just talk about everybody else, but occasionally we'll have a line or two that we can, you know, have for our next session, you know. Yes. And just, just friends, you know. It's a, a music's all about the joy and friendship, you know, that that you can have. And Absolutely. I think that's... It's marvellous, you know. Because the one thing that was, was quite interesting during the 80s, was, and you touched on it there, was that production sound. Because in, in this country and, and probably in America as well, so, and, and yeah, so you had that Trevor Horn sound, didn't you? The, the sort of, um, yeah, that Frankie Goes to Hollywood, ABC, you know, really sort of quite a harsh kind of over-studio, over-produced sound. Yeah. And then you you also got the indie sound, so you had bands like yeah. the Go-Betweens and the Triffids and the yeah. Smiths and, and lots of those kind of uh, bands. So how did you find, the, you know, following trends, or not following trends, but sort of trying to sort of navigate through those kind of, kind of different kind of uh, fashions, I suppose? Well I, well, I kind of avoided it at all costs, really. I had nothing, you know, there was nothing there for me to sort of think about, you know. I mean, I thought I, I, liked, I liked what was going on, but it was had nothing to do with what I, would, what I was kind of working through, you know. So I, um, I, you know, I didn't sort of go out of my way to avoid it, you know. I just kind of gravitated to the things that I found more attractive. And um, as I said, I wasn't really interested in, in, being successful or trying to, I don't think, mo I maybe phrase that differently, you know, I wasn't, I didn't want to go anti anything. I just kind of, I, I, I was interested in the music that I liked and the sounds that I liked. Uh, if they were popular, all well and good. If they weren't, well, it didn't really make any difference. You know, those first four albums, you know, were funded by me. You know, the, that was kind of, that's how bad my world had become you know um by the time i i got to do dear children you know the, whatever money i made out of the falcons you know was a deposit on a house i kind of took a mortgage on that you know because I, I just felt strong about making music you know so uh, 
I never thought that it, was, it related to coinage. You know, I didn't think it turned into gold, financial gold. It's kind of one of the main music. I'm a, once again, maybe an unusual kind of guy, but so I, I didn't sort of, yeah, you know, I, I like some of the things, you know, like the, I didn't think about sort of um, borrowing from that. I, I, I still, I was still into the music that I liked as a younger, a younger man. And I, I fell in love with the, as I fell in love with reggae music and still have a wonderful, uh, not only a wonderful collection of reggae music, but a wonderful, I play it all the time, you know, like jazz. And But I also loved what was happening in the in the New Orleans Audico, um, that, that uh, Cajun sound kind of found also incredibly charming. And, and, um, and so once again, you know, you, you, you tend to put in, uh, you, you, you put in a lot more time into those kind of things, you know. So, you know, I was oblivious to what was going on around me to some degree. Yes. And did you feel at times like the band, you know, you obviously are the sort of the band leader. Did you feel a bit mm. like a member, like a David Bowie or Prince in that sense of sort of thinking, right, you know, on this next album, I've got this lineup, which is because the lineup often changed quite a bit. And I just wondered how that kind of influenced your creative direction on each project. Um, um, could you just sorry? Could you just repeat that? I've just kind of lost the first second, lost my train of thought. Yes, no. So I'm what just, was the question again? I'm sorry, just, my, I was my just apologies. talking. No, it's fine. I was just talking about you know over the over these you know decades or mm. yeah of, of your the mm. Black Sorrows. You you know there's been quite a changeover of sort of different personnel mm. and a bit like people like David Bowie who often work with mm. quite different musicians on each yeah. project. I just wondered yeah. how that would. Uh, dictate the the general creative direction of, of each album and that particular period because obviously a different bass player or a different guitarist or yeah. you know must Mate, that, yeah. have an influence all those things do yeah that's right all those things change when but but of course you're only in you're in the hands of the people that you're playing with you know so when george decided to start his own band which is the thing that i loved about the black sorrows that the the jojo zepp didn't have you know when, when Jojo Zep broke up, one of the things that I said to myself is I want the flexibility. I, I want the elasticity of, of being able to be whatever whatever the song requires, you know. So if, if, if someone left the band and when George left the band, it was a big hole because he was a big part of the band and he wanted to start his own Zydeco band. And... Um, you know, and you appreciate his time and you say, well, things have to change. There's two things that you can do. You can replace him with someone else and carry on, or you can say this is an opportunity for change. Uh, I took the opportunity for change. And uh, and I would say to everybody, just like I said to the girls, when you've, when you've done your time with me and you're ready to go, go, because it's your time and I believe in that. And, and it's stronger, and, and there's then the friendship will always be, you know. There's no ill feelings, no. But uh, and and so, as you that from that point, from a player's point of view, from a record point of view, that's what happens. Uh, from a writing point of view, I think you just grow. And me and Nick were growing, and we started writing, you know, slightly different songs and, and sort of more cinematic songs, and and. Um, 
and, and so that 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 gives you an opportunity to be more creative in the studio or try to try different things that have sort of value um, to us as as musicians, as people that we're running our own race. We're not part of the briefcase rock society anymore, you know. We want to hit, but it has to be on your, your terms, you know. It can't be on um, on their terms, you know, because it's going to be fake. And, you know, as, as difficult it is, is to be on the level that you're at, uh, you enjoy it uh, a lot more because it's real. And I b believe in all those things, you know. I believe in the, the realness of people um, giving you the thing that you get live, you know, uh, which is kind of how I personally see things. You know, um, I'll give you everything I have, but I want everything from you. You know, you're not slacking off. Do not slack off. Give me everything you've got. You've got an opportunity to be anything you want to be inside this band, as long as we pay, as long as we, 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 uh, you know, we don't kill the song. Be anything you want to be inside it. Know the song. Play. Do anything you want. And, and uh, you know, and it's a wonderful way of, for me, a wonderful way of, of being on that wave with an audience. You know, from uh, the the records. You know. That's a different animal, and you have to sort of deal with, which I said way back in 1982. The the rec, it's the song that comes first, and if you're not able to play on the song, well, it's it's got nothing to do with you. It's just that it's not part of your world, you know. As a musician, I'm just um, we go in the uh, recording studio to mix this next record, and half the band ain't on it. Uh, and it's it's not that I wanted to freshen up the band. It's just the way the producer decided. I'm not producing this record. He's decided I've given him the opportunity to be whatever his job, you know, and he's decided to change things around. So everyone in the band that's playing with me understand that, you know. So um, time will tell if, it, if, if, um, if it's a, a better thing or not. I don't know. I just wanted to move myself away from this particular record. And I think every record, you know, has its challenges and has its frustrations and it has its um, all the things that go with it, you know. Yes, absolutely. I'll just go in slightly back. You know, when you brought yeah, your... Sorry, I keep going forward. <laughs> no, it's fine. But there was a sort of... You you, you, you brought another project out, the, the Bakelite yeah. Radio. Yeah. Did, did that at the time feel... Was that like your tin machine you know, like the day well, Bowie, you know, in the sense of thinking, yeah. God, I just need to do something which isn't the Black Sorrows or anything else. Well, yeah, you know, you want to do things, you know, the, the, that's my, really, it's my love for music that I love, you know, and, and that I haven't written, or sometimes I write songs inside it that you're inspired by, you know, most of them are, are about the beauty of, of songwriters and song and singers, you know, and, um, whether it's, you know, you get some joy from J.J. Kale or whatever the song may be, Blind Willie McTowell or, or those kind of things. It's just just a joy, you know, something else to do. You, you, we write a lot of songs, me and Nick, but sometimes the, the songs don't relate to each other, you know. They, they're, 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 they're not harmonious and, and you want you want to be able to you know, have a bunch of songs that belong together. 
uh, and sometimes you just like this conversation. Sometimes you go forward a little <laughs> bit too early. Yes. Um, um, so it, it, it wasn't. It's not out of frustration. It's just out of a, a love. You know, I've just made a Bakelite radio record, um, which comes out in April, and and it's it's once again it's it's about giving life. I I tried to write songs on it for it. You know. Every song I wrote didn't fit, you know, uh, because it, it's kind of a blues and ballads record, you know. It's, it's, it has um, you know, that that old timey sound uh, of, of of the ballads of, you know, Doris Day style kind of chord progressions and beautiful songs, you know, in in that not necessarily famous songs. Then it has the blues, you know, of of Snooks Eaglin and. And uh, and Lightning Hopkins or something like that, you know, or or um, Lonnie Johnson, you know. So it's kind of a lovely little record, you know, with a sort of most of it's a trio, um, and, and it just feels nice, you know. It's kind of it, it's kind of like a nice warm, it's a nice shirt or it's a nice jacket that you put on, you know. It feels good, you know. Um, so I, I just make that out because of my love for the artists and. And and um, the joy that it brings me. Yes, because so just to make make sure I got this right, and talking about the current day, you you, you brought out um, Citizen John, but at the end of yeah. last year you were recording a yeah. new Black Sorrows album. Yeah, with is that Peter Solly? Yeah, so he's he he landed in he landed in Australia yesterday. So. I'm on tour today. Uh, this, you know, been on tour. I never get off tour, really. But uh, so I, I, we start mixing that record. Oh, he does. I just hang around. I, I get, I get to make the coffee and say, "Hmm, that sounds good," <laughs> and and then leave the room. Yes, <laughs> that sounds good. Oh, I don't like that. Oh, I don't know what about that. You know, um, and, and and I, I what the thing that I've learned, David, is um, that if someone's doing the job, let them do the job. That's what you're paying them for. That's their expertise. Do not get in their grill, you know. You know, and if they ask you a question, be honest. And um, I got a feeling that Peter's made so many records, and it was it was a wonderful connection with Peter because I hadn't seen him for forty years, you know. And uh, and he just happened to come to Australia and said, "Can I can I come and stay at your house? You know, can I?" Kind of, you know, and I said, yeah, come and, and we kind of hit it off uh, as as two guys. We like the same music, you know. We we and I didn't even know that at the time, you know. I knew that he was a great keyboard player and he's produced lots of great records and played with a lot of great artists. But you know, when when we when we got to the nitty gritties of uh, we're about the same age, you know, and he did all those Motorhead records. And yes. He was talking to you know, and uh, he reckons he lost his hearing. Uh, so it's not going to – it doesn't sound good for my record, does it? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, so I gave him the opportunity. I said, listen, Pete, why don't you just come and come and produce this record just for fun, you know. You know, I'll pay you. And, and um, he said, you know, and he – he was a bit worried about it, and he said, "Well, what do you want out of this record?" And I said, "I just want a good record. I want a good-sounding record that that's true to, you know, the songs that me and Nick have written, you know, as a collection of songs in the last 12, 14 months. You know, yes, do absolutely. that. I'll be happy with that." 
Amazing. And because, I mean, he has worked, you know, he's got one hell of a CV, hasn't he, as well, with obviously Prof. Yeah. Harum, but also Eric Clapton, yeah. you know, and some yeah, classics with Elle Stewart and, and even Whitesnake. So, he, you know, he is, yeah. it is quite important. And it was interesting because I did an interview with Fast Eddie from Motorhead and they talk, he talked mm. a lot about the importance of the producer. Um, and, yeah. he, and he and he just said that, you know, this is Fast Eddie, that when Motorhead went to record their third album, they had a problem. Well, they didn't. They had a great producer for the first two albums, but then mm. the drummer kind of got into a fight, fight with him yeah. and basically the, the producer went. So, they, so Fast Eddie became the producer of that third album and that was yeah. the final album that he played on. He said it all went wrong because yeah. you just don't want to be the musician who's also the producer because it just doesn't work. So, it, well, you know... They, they, it, it just Sorry, but yeah, no, I was going to no, say it just doesn't work. What, what, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say he did exactly that. He said, "I'm not playing on your record. I'm producing your record. Now I'll, I'll play on it after we get the band tracks together, but I've got to produce the record." And I think that I, that's one lesson I learned, you know, because I'm normally producing the records while I'm, you know, and I'm directing traffic, you know, not only not only financially directing traffic, but I'm directing traffic, you know, so you, you tend to want to believe uh, the drummer who says, I didn't make a mistake. That's great, you know, and you're, you're in the song, you know, you're hearing it for the first time. You say, wow, this is great, you know, but you, you're, not, you're not seeing the holes, you know, and, and, um, and, and I think Peter brought that, you know, he squared us up in a, in a way that, that he said, hey, listen, you know, you don't need to play that or to someone or the piano player or someone, you don't need to play that, you know, just keep it, you know, keep it cool, you know. And um, and so we'll see what happens. And I, I, I really thought if I was to make another record, uh, I um, I would, you know, if I was a producer of someone else's record, I, that's how I would be looking at it. I wouldn't be playing on it. I would just be concentrating on what was going down. Yes, amazing. And what, And do you have a date for the release of the album? No, you know, I don't have, um, uh, well, we should finish it in, well, he has to leave on the 4th of March, so it has to be all done by then. Uh, and then, you know, then, you know, uh, I think we're calling it St. George's Road, um, but I'm not sure about that title, but, and then, um, you know, we have to make the covers and get all that sorted and, and then try to shop it around, see if we can find a home you know it's still it's just you know it's still the same world for me you know i've got to find a home no one knocks on my door and say hey joseph i can't wait to hear your next record you know and, you know let's put this record out let's you know let's go in the studio and make this record you know uh, i had i had that for a little while you know i don't have it anymore and I, i'm fine with that you know I'm, you know I'm, i think rock music and music and art it's all about the struggle you know I think not that I enjoy the struggle, but I think there's better things come out of you know there's better times with with the struggle. You you, you kind of make certain decisions. Some things you can't. Uh, some things you can do, uh, and some things you can't. You, you know you have to sort of uh, some you just have to stop. Some things that, you know are what they are. Some things you can't go back to. You know some things. But but you take it all on and and um, you make the best of what it is. Yes. And just lastly, I mean, what would you yeah. say to a, an eighteen year old or a, sort of a person starting out in 
in the world that is kind of, the, you know, music and the creative arts. I mean, just wondered if there was one thing over these decades you think, God, I wish that would, that's kind of wisdom that I've picked up by doing this gig. I, I think there's, a, there's lots of things, but listening is a really important thing, you know. Do the work. Don't believe the hype. Do the work. Be silent. We'll, you know, work through your things in a peaceful way, you know. Um, um, you know, keep doing the things till they're boring, you know. Keep inventing things. Keep reinventing yourself. All these things have incredible value, um, and and um, uh, but don't believe the hype if you happen to sort of, you know, strike it rich real early. You know, yes. surround yourself with people that you believe in. All these things they sound pretty simple, and and you know, um, they're the real things, um, and work. You know, um, really have a go. Uh, at at being in a position, a place where you're uncomfortable, learn how to learn how to look after an audience in a good way. Learn how to be uh, gracious in that environment, and um, and help others. You know, they're the things that I think that I've learned um, um, through doing thousands and thousands of shows. Yes, and did you? I mean, because you've got such a phenomenal story in history have you ever been tempted to to write your book you've just had a conversation with me you know that i can't write a book <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if that was you know it's it's such a story you know i don't know i mean it's just like it's quite popular at the moment isn't it not just books yeah. but people are making films there's a lot of films yeah, yeah. coming out you know like the be like the, yeah. the go-betweens have had one and the chills from new zealand and, yeah. and the wedding yeah. present in the uk i mean every, you know there's, there's a fan somewhere who's who's saying right i I want to make a film of your life. I just wondered if anybody's approached you. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm not really. I'm not up for that. I'm not up for writing a book. Not not at this particular point of time. You know, um, I'm a, I'm a weird guy. You know, because I here's the thing. You know, I, I, now I say this loosely. You don't need to use this, but because um, I never took drugs, it, it um, my life was kind of really pretty straight you know it's always just purely about the music it was never about all the things to sort of uh find something and you know through something you know their stories i guess you can tell you know i have a pretty clean kind of uh life and so um you know that my struggles are slightly i i from my perspective are really quite boring you know because it's kind of like um uh, it's a slightly different journey. It's 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 not fueled by, you know, um, um, certain kinds of distortions and, and coming up with something. You know, um, um, when I hear things, you know, and, and people talking about, you know, you had to take heroin to do this. You know, whether it's Charlie Parker or John Coltrane, you know. It created a different sort of story, you know, and, and because it was their struggle back and their struggle to find something, you know, and hallucinations and all those kind of things. You know? So I never had that, you know. I didn't smoke dope. I didn't take, you know, I hardly took any alcohol. I was kind of pretty much 
just you know a clean head. So I don't think I'm really. I don't think anybody's interested. They they want the bad stuff. You know? <laughs> they want to read about. Oh my God, he didn't do that, did he? You know, yes. um, that kind of thing. So I don't, I don't know. You know, I don't think that. Um, I don't think my story is all that interesting, really. I've just been. Uh, I just had um, a tenacity and a will to, you know, on on the level that I'm at and on the level that I was, and um, you know, I'm gracious. And, and grateful and and happy to be doing it still, you know, and still have a still feel there's something in my soul and that has value, you know, um, to me and the people that might come and see me and, and feel it, you know. So that's kind of, I don't think that's much of a story. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. There's not many. There aren't that many people who've managed to do rock and roll all their life, and you know, like I, you know, I named those two: David Bowie and Lemmy. Mm. But but most people, you know, don't manage to sort of keep it going. They often drop and do something else for a few years or decades. Yeah. So I mean, it is it is incredibly impressive that you've you've had. Oh, thank you, sir. You have just rocked it, you know, and um, yes, kept kept with the. I mean, it's a bit like Neil Young. He's you know he he always yeah. said he kept with the moves. He just didn't deviate. Yeah. And and there's you know there aren't many of you, so I'm very impressed. I think it's an amazing oh, thank story. You. <laughs> so yes, thank you, sir. well look. This has been great. Thank you ever so much, Joe, for your a pleasure. time. And thank Michelle as well, who was very patient. Yeah. And, um, and hurrah for um, Skype. This is all I have to say. Thank you. <laughs> Look, well, um, uh, yes, well, uh, I hope we, we cross swords somewhere down the track. Yes. Okay. And I'll, I'll tell Michelle when I put it out and send a link. But that'll be yeah. great. Take care and have thank a you. lovely well. day. Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye.